1: of death and grief each week i talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club welcome to griefcast hey griefsters i hope you're having an okay week it is pretty cold and dark and we are heading towards holiday festive Christmas time whether you celebrate or not it's still I guess a lot of time people sort of get together with their families so I know it's difficult for people at this time of year. I just want to say I've been sharing on Instagram and Twitter some resources and I know Julia Samuel, Saint Julia as we say on the show, has been sharing some really good resources on Instagram as well. It's also National Grief Awareness Week if you're listening then you're aware of grief (laughs) like you don't need to be made aware of it but if you're looking for good resources good events um, the Good Grief Trust I've been running some stuff this week and so yeah just check out we're at the grief cast on Instagram and Twitter and I'll be sharing some things on there as well This week, I'm talking to an extraordinary person. I know I say that every week, but my goodness, this woman is amazing. She is the writer Hilma Wallitzer. She has a new book called Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, which is a collection of her stories, which she's been writing since the late 60s, because Hilma, and I I feel like this is relevant because she's just, she's a very impressive person. She is 91, which you would not know from talking to her. She is so quick and witty and funny and brilliant and I, I felt so honored that she gave up her time to speak to me because obviously she's 91 she doesn't need to bother to talk to me uh said so this new book has come out and it's if, especially if you're struggling with like reading a big novel at the moment i'd really recommend it because it's just like these lovely short vignettes that are so well written and uh, i really loved it hilma came in to talk to me about her husband morty who passed away from covid at the start of the pandemic last year Are you in Brooklyn at the moment, Hilma? No, I haven't
0: been in Brooklyn for years. I live in Manhattan oh, okay. now. I'm still oh, in New York City, but I'm in Manhattan.
1: That's a real New York answer that you were like, oh, no, I'm not in Brooklyn. I'm in Manhattan. <laughs> like, <laughs> you are still in New York right now. So thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, you have a beautiful new book out at the moment, which is a collection of your old works and a more recent uh, story. Uh, which is it's it's yeah I I, I thought that the writing is incredible it's really and it's very interesting to read a writer develop you know because we you start with your very famous essay A Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket which was written in oh, 55 years ago 55 years ago and we end with a much more a recent story written last year and it's yeah it's absolutely fascinating so congratulations on that first Thank of you. all on your new book so Hilma we ask everybody this. Who are we remembering today?
0: We're remembering two people. My husband, Morton Wallitzer,
1: and my father,
0: Abraham Liebman.
1: And did you want to start with your husband, Morty? Yes,
0: yes. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: So how did Morty die? What happened? He died of COVID
0: at the very beginning of the pandemic. We oh. both came down with it. He came down with it first, I caught it. We were hospitalized, but in separate hospitals. So we never saw each other again. Um, He died two days before I was released. And we were married, you know, we had a great privilege. We were married for 68 years and not many people get that many years together. So we were very fortunate. And uh, it was the circumstances of his death that were the hardest to take because Mm. it was as if he had vanished. We never saw each other. You read all the obituaries and they say the person was surrounded by loved ones. Well, there were no loved ones there because of the pandemic. He Mm. was not allowed any visitors. Uh, I was in the hospital. I was not allowed any visitors. And after he died, there were none of the usual rituals of mourning. There was no funeral. There was no getting together of the family afterward to see one another. I came home. Um, when I was released from the hospital and I said he had died two days before, his shoes were still next to the bed and his mm. glasses were, his reading glass, he had a number of pair of drugstore reading glasses and uh, a pair of them was still on the bed as well. And it was really hard to come to terms with his not being there. Mm. Uh, and I think that I wrote the story finally as a way of grieving and as a way of Putting it down on paper made me see what really happened, made me examine it, accept it, and find some peace.
1: Mm. Oh, I can't, yeah. We've been talking a lot about the past year on this show. And the phrase that I heard very early on, which has stuck with me, is the phrase that anybody who was suffering a bereavement at this time was suffering trauma on top of trauma. Because as we know on the show, if you experience a death, you know, in normal times, inverted commas, it's very traumatic, it's very difficult. But to experience it when, as you said, all your rituals are taken from you, you, you can't hold someone's hand, you can't say goodbye, it's an, an added layer of trauma on top of what, you're, of what you had to deal with. And yeah, so did he die? Was it in March when it kind of hit in New York? No, That's he, when di- it hit he,
0: he came down with it at the very end of March and died right. uh, in April. He was home for a few days with it and didn't tell me he didn't feel well. And uh, then I heard him coughing, Mm. and then he couldn't suddenly couldn't stand up, and I had to call nine one one for an emergency ambulance, and they came. And at that point, as I said in the stories, and this is the most autobiographical story I've ever written. I usually Mm. protect our privacy more, and I'm usually though there are invented details in the story, and I Mm. assign it all to fictional characters. uh, It is what really happened to us and he didn't feel well and he couldn't stand up and they came and they just they put him on a gurney and they put an oxygen mask over his face and they began shouting at me to get his phone to get his pajamas to get to get his glasses and so forth I couldn't find matching pajamas I mean and that seemed important to me stupidly enough It's the details that get you in the end. And I remember running after the gurney down the hallway. We live in a high-rise, and um, they rang for the elevator. And when the elevator came, and he was gone, the elevator door closed, I realized I never said goodbye or I love you or anything. I said it afterward, and it was too late. He was gone. Mm. And so in writing it, I really felt as if I had made the surreal real. Mm. And I was able to, I I was very sad, I was walking around the house weeping at unexpected moments, like in the shower. And of course, we were still in isolation. Uh, We were still in lockdown. And for quite a while after that, in fact, I I had his clothes here for over a year before my grandsons were inoculated and could come and help me both physically and emotionally to dispose of them. So that was very hard. But you know, someone asked, uh, "How did you deal with writing the story?" I said, "It would have been harder not to write the story. Mm. It was painful, but it was also cathartic."
1: You get that sense reading it that you're someone who writes through things, and I think not everybody has that brain, if that makes sense, that they they need to write through an experience, and I think that's a, a true testament of a writer that everything that you are. all your input is collaborated inside and then needs to come out you know through a keyboard through writing through a pen And, and you get that sense from reading it that it is the the wife character in the story is slowly processing what the the fuck just happened to her yeah it paralleled um, what I what I was what was happening to me and what had happened mm. to him
0: and truthfully that's I hadn't written fiction for a very long time and I thought I had retired from writing fiction we were both 90 years old we were having a very nice companionable old age I was writing a poem occasionally but I wasn't writing any stories I hadn't done them for years and I couldn't believe how my fingers flew on the keyboard uh, I almost couldn 't type
1: as quickly as the story was coming to me, and wow. I knew that I had to write it down. Yeah, you get that sense reading it, it has that sense of urgency about it, and I think especially for you know all of us who have lived through the past year and a half, I think we can all relate to that that horrific panic that we all had of not knowing not knowing what the situation was, not knowing what anything meant not knowing what going to hospital meant and it must have been so frightening for you to have him like as you say whisked away from you and then you having to go to a different hospital were you able to communicate with him at all while you were in yes we did we
0: spoke to each other at night as I say in the story and there was a doctor who called me every night to report on him and called my children as well he was just a wonderful young doctor and the thing he actually said to me which was so heartbreaking. I couldn't put it into the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, He asked me to call him and my children kept reminding me to do it. And I said, "Uh, I'm just not emotionally prepared to speak to him. And Mm -hmm. the kids kept saying, well, he won't remember who you are because there's one COVID case after another. And the the obituaries were full of COVID cases. So I finally called him and I said, I hope you'll remember me. I hope you remember my husband. He said, oh, he said, I will carry him in my heart throughout my practice. And it almost
1: sounded too corny to put in the yeah. story, though <laughs> yeah, it moved yeah, me yeah. tremendously when he said it. Yeah, yeah that's one of those um, where life is too corny to be fictionalized. You're right, you have to make <laughs> it tougher. Real, yeah, yeah, in real life that's like beautiful. In a story you're like, oh, come on, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> but that's so wonderful that that doctor was able to communicate that you had somebody because my god what they must have been going through at that time all of those people working the frontline workers it must have just been well it's yeah it's it's possible to imagine and it's not pleasant to imagine do you know that every night i don't know if you did this in london but in new york city
0: every night at a particular time everybody in the street would cheer the uh, medical workers just this huge cheer would go up in the street and I opened my windows to hear it because it was very heartening
1: yeah we had we every Thursday we would clap clap for carers so every Thursday you'd open your window at eight o'clock and everyone would bang their pans and that's just what this was like yes yeah and I have to say uh,
0: one thing that happened with my husband speaking of clapping was the night before he died he died in the middle of the night this was friday i found out i was going out of the hospital on monday somebody told him about it he could no longer speak but he clapped
1: oh hilma
0: yeah that was that was really pretty heavy that was <sighs> that was hard for me to think about
1: yeah that's very a very beautiful and sad thing at exactly the same time how was it when you you know you described not having these rituals how did you cope that in the initial aftermath Of a death, which is is always a very difficult time, but is normally filled with people and rituals. And, you know, normally people complain like, oh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get rid of people. Everyone's coming around. But you were in this completely opposite, you know, through the looking glass world where you were on your own.
0: Yeah, I was completely on my own. And uh, I was glad that my children had spouses and my grandchildren as well, so that they had somebody with them. I realized that I didn't share a meal with anybody for more than a year. So oh, okay. I would always take a book to the table, the thing my mother would say was very rude to do, but <laughs> I was all alone so nobody could criticise me.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I think you're allowed to do that in that circumstance. Do you do you feel like you were able to process the grief? Or did you feel like it, because it was just you, you know, it's just in your head? How How was it? I couldn't until I wrote the story, actually. Mm. It was very hard. I kept
0: thinking I would hear his footsteps. I would hear his key. I, I, you know, he would he would say something to me. Uh, and in the story, I, I compare it. Well, I, I talk about Houdini dying and wanting he and his wife wanting to make contact after one of them died. And I, of course, I didn't believe anymore. It turned out that Houdini couldn't contact his wife after he died, no matter how many seances she had on his birthday. But I found myself uh, watching a ball game. We were both very big baseball fans for the New York Mets, who were losing horribly at the time. But I would find myself lying only on my side of the bed. I never moved to his side of the bed, but I would find myself, after there was a home run or a terrible error, I would turn and say, did you see that? And I really forgot for a split second that he wasn't there to answer me
1: yeah I mean of course of course after that long of someone being a part of your life I mean I always compare it to um when you start going out with someone it takes a while to get used to them being your life and when someone dies it takes a while to get used to them not being there you know people leave indentations in us and it's it doesn't just stop being like oh they're gone you know you all those like you said those rituals of speaking to them and those things you did together it's you have to then do them by yourself, and that's that's so difficult. And I can't imagine what you went through having to do it alone without without support. When were you able to go out and see people, or were you being very careful? I am assuming after what happened to you as well. Like when? Well, did you somebody kind of came to help me out through an
0: agency because I was still very um. weak after the mm. COVID. So she came, and unfortunately she caught COVID from another person she was seeing, so I had to be quarantined even longer, and then I was on my own. Uh, The building I live in, the people who service the building I live in were just wonderful. I could put my trash outside. They would leave my mail outside. And as I said in the story, I would just open the peephole just to see somebody human going down the hallway just to see another person walking down the hallway. It took a very long time. And then we finally went outside and my family gathered in the street. I have a photograph of it. Everyone more than six feet apart waving at each other, throwing kisses and so forth through the mask. Uh, It was very bizarre. But then now I'm triple vaccinated. Uh, my kids are vaccinated and they can come my daughter is here and is going to make a wonderful dinner for me tonight <laughs> so I won't be reading a book at the table
1: yeah oh good I'm glad I'm really glad that some sense of support network has been able to come back to you because I just yeah I can't imagine how how difficult it's been what did you do about funerals did you kind of postpone stuff or are he you was still waiting? he was cremated
0: and no one mm. saw him off. Uh, so that was another thing. And uh, one of my older daughter has the ashes. I, I just haven't dealt with that at all. But I did, mm. on the first anniversary of his death, hold a Zoom memorial service for him. It probably took me a year to figure out how to do Zoom, <laughs> because I seem to have forgotten that I didn't have a touchscreen screen. And I oh, began poking right, yeah. my screen desperately and, and couldn't get anything to happen. But we did have a zoo memorial. And uh, because he loved jazz so much, we played some jazz music and showed photographs. And my kids and, and several friends spoke wonderfully about him. They spoke about his absence and they spoke about his presence in their lives. And it was really very heartening. That was. The, I, and I didn't even really believe in the rituals before this. Mm. Um, I didn't know, you know, I didn't see how they helped at all. But I realized just being in the company of others and touching one another, mm. holding hands or hugging someone. Even now we sort of mime a hug, <laughs> even though we're vaccinated, yeah. we, we, or we hug with our faces turned away. Mm. I have to say that uh, there was a male nurse in hospital, uh, who came to tell me that my husband had died and or maybe my daughter called I can't even remember at this point maybe mm-hmm. I knew already and he had just found out but he came in and he put his arms around me and I'll never forget that that was so brave of him first mm-hmm. of all I mean we were masked but still I was actively mm-hmm. ill and um, it was just a wonderful gesture so people were terrific um, mm. and also i I felt isolated, but I didn't feel totally alone because the whole world was going through this.
1: Yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh,
0: uh, two weeks before uh, my husband died, my daughter's mother-in-law died of COVID. Oh, wow. So it was bang, bang, and, but it was happening to so many people and mm. everybody seemed to really care about each other in a way mm. that, that I, didn't re- I didn't remember since World War II. Mm. when I remember that kind of caring for one's neighbour and uh, it
1: was quite it was quite moving to me yeah that's yeah it, it's it's been I think with you know we're still we're still processing what just happened and, and it's still happening and it's still ha yeah it hasn't gone and I think yeah that sense of, we definitely had that in London that sense of deep care as you said you know neighbors really caring for each other like really go just the small little gestures that people were really reaching out to each other to be like you're not alone I'm here like I can help you and it was it was really um it was really heartening to see that it was really heartening but I think the rituals is really interesting I knew the rituals were important but it wasn't until they all went that I began to see, as you said, like quite what those rituals, how they were holding us together. And if you'd asked me before, I would have said, oh, a funeral is very important because we all need to remember that person. I wouldn't have said, oh, you need to hug people. You need to hold their hat like because that's something we had never lost. So- and you also had to see it happening so that you could
0: believe it, so that you could yeah. process it and believe it and go on. I think you have to grieve before you can accept it. Mm. And this bizarreness, this this weirdness of the situation interfered with actually believing it for a mm. while. And yeah. as I said, when I wrote it down, it made
1: it real. Yeah, and that's interesting because what you're describing is often what I've heard children say who lost a parent and they weren't allowed to see it or be at the funeral. So maybe, for example... They lost a parent in the 1970s, and they were kept away from it. And they would say, "I didn't believe it. It was like it hadn't happened." And I think, you know, we're 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 hitting again how important it is to see somebody, to be there, to hold a hand, to see a dead body for your something in your brain to th- go, "This is real." Like exactly. Of, of course, that interrupts your grieving because a part of your brain is thinking, "Well, maybe they're just." gone to the shops, maybe they're just gonna come back. It's very difficult to, to get your brain around somebody dying, especially so quickly and in the middle of such chaos.
0: Right, and not of anything you would expect your no. loved one to die of. Yeah. I mean, we had five cancers between us that we had survived oh. and, and, we're doing, and we're doing very well, mm. really, really feeling well. And so for this to have happened was was um, just bizarre. But as I said, we did have 68 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, isn't it, with grief. There's, it doesn't stop things being painful. No, no. <laughs> but yeah. it's still something, it's still a, a beautiful thing that you had 68 years together. But yeah, I mean, I think we all had that strange sense of, I, I at the moment, can't stop looking at photos from like December 2019, you know, when we Mm -hmm. didn't know. And we all look so, we look different. We look innocent. There's like, just, and I think, gosh, if I could have paused and told that person, there's going to be a global pandemic. You won't be able to leave your house. I would have laughed. I would have, no, because it was the realms of, you know, Hollywood movies. It wasn't anything any of us could conceive would ever happen. Everybody's lovely naked face without a mask. Yeah. Or in the house or standing near each other, hugging each other with no... Yes. Yeah, no, no, like, oh, gosh, yeah, it's really strange. It's terribly... I mean, what you've been through, Hilma, is, yeah, very, very difficult. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to have that Zoom memorial. I think stuff like that, like you said, even if it is on Zoom, even if it is not, still not quite normal, I think, as you said, it, it, to allow, to be around people who loved the person as, in, as you did is very important.
0: It was very important. I realized afterward how much better I felt for having done it. Sad during it and Mm. better afterwards.
1: Yeah. It was comforting. Yeah, like you said, not realizing what a ritual can do until it's done, and then being like, oh, that's why funerals exist. (laughs) That's why they've been around for millennia because something in us needs to say goodbye properly. Now I know. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back to GriefCast with Carrie Lloyd. And when you were writing the story, um, how did it feel when it was out in the world? Did you feel, did it just feel cathartic or did you feel like, oh gosh, there's my grief out in the world? Like, how do I feel about that? No, I didn't
0: feel that I exposed anything really private or secret. Or, or deeply private about it because mm. I assigned it to fictional characters, and because I put in so many invented details and I refer to it as, as the truth wrapped in a lie which is <laughs> I guess a definition of fiction anyway yeah. because there's an intrinsic truth but not necessarily a personal truth in it. Mm. This did have a lot of, a lot of the details uh, were recognisable to my
1: family. What did your family say when you said I'm going to write this down? Well,
0: first of all, my, my younger daughter, Meg, who's a wonderful novelist and a wonderful daughter, uh, came up with the idea for the collection in the first place. I came out of hospital, and I was sad and sick, and she had been reading these stories and said, Mom, I think you ought to have a collection. And I wasn't the least bit interested at first, but as time went on, I realized I had to do something besides grieve And I had to have something to look forward to. Even at 91, you need something to look forward to. And suddenly I became involved in it. It was a very big process. I forgot that how difficult it is to put a book together. Even one that you've mostly written already, I had to find (laughs) the proper order for the stories. I had to reread the stories and um, look for repetitions because the stories were published separately. And Mm. writers tend to have particular ticks, words they repeat. And so I had to make sure that they didn't cross over from story to story. And then I had the new story. And the new story was the longest story in the book, I think. And I had to do that too. And then I had to get all these, uh, what they call passes, uh, that you get from the publisher. They keep Mm. sending you and you have to look for it for errors and for uh, things you might want to change. And both of my daughters were reading them along with me in their respective homes and helping me. So my kids were really terrifically helpful. And I became very distracted by this process. Mm-hmm. I wasn't particularly looking forward to publication. But it has been a very good experience here mm. and, and where you are as well. I mean, the response in the UK has just been thrilling.
1: That's so wonderful. I'm so glad. I mean, the stories are beautiful. They really are. And they're funny. And they're really, you know, and I, I do a, a comedy show, which is based on Jane Austen. And we, we dress up in Regency gear and we improvise a Jane Austen show. Can I and download it, that? <laughs> yes, you can. I'll send you the link. I'll send oh, you I'd the love link. to. But it reminded me of Jane Austen. It reminded me of, you know, that kind of my minutiae and detail of, you know, a female point of view that often gets overlooked and those things that women do notice. And I just thought this book is so brilliant. I was like, I loved it. And, you know, yeah, the new story is... It's really heartbreaking, but I think especially for this time. It's so it's cathartic as a reader, because you you know, you can recognise a lot of those feelings of panic and grief that we've all been through, even if you haven't experienced something as tragic as you have been through. It is it's a really beautiful book. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm so pleased that I'm so pleased for you that in the midst of something so awful there was a distraction because you deserve it. (laughs) Thank you. you And I have to say I have to say that Jane Austen
0: gave me permission to write about domesticity, about the Mm -hmm. household life. Uh, It became, it was what I knew. I was, Mm. I often say I was raised by a housewife to be a housewife. I had no particular career. I didn't go to college. Uh, And so reading Jane Austen, and of course the second wave of feminism helped too, but I began to see that it was legitimate to write about Domestic life, that really mm. domestic life was important and it became a valid
1: literary subject. Mm. And you get that, that's why were, yeah, I get that sense in your stories. I, and I was reading them and I thought, oh, this is like Austin, where it's so familiar that it takes you a second to recognize quite how skillful it is to pick up on that, the domesticity, because you're like, oh, yeah, the supermarket, yeah, 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 oh, I know this world. But obviously I know that world well because equally, you know, I live in the domestic quite heavily and I have two kids and a husband and all the, the other trappings of domestic, domestic life. And, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's my other, death and Jane Austen. I have to be careful I don't start <laughs> doing the Jane Austen podcast. Um, Hilma, did you want to um, talk about your dad a little bit? So yes. his name was
0: Abraham. Yes, and he was six weeks shy of 100 when he died. That is incredible. (laughs) Unfortunately, he was suffering from dementia. Okay, yeah. And he was bedridden, and he developed gangrene in his leg, and the doctor said they must remove the leg, they must amputate the leg and I said oh must you really? I mean Mm. I I don't want him to go through that. And He said well the pain of gangrene is worse than the pain of amputation and he won't even know what happened to him anyway, which he didn't, Mm. Uh, but it happened and then eight days later he died Mm. and he was uh, a practicing Orthodox Jew and I had to call his rabbi with whom he'd been connected for a number of years. The rabbi was fairly elderly himself. I had to call and make arrangements for the funeral for a graveside service. Mm. And I told the rabbi everything that had happened. And he said to me, where's the leg? (laughs) And I thought, oh my, Uh, you know, I had been taking care of. Both of my parents had dementia, and I'd been helping them as much as I could for several years. Mm. And even though I loved them deeply, I also felt relieved that they were out of this kind of psychic agony. And I was, Mm. and selfishly, I was now free, but I wasn't. I had to locate my father's leg. (laughs) It seems that in Jewish law, you must be buried, all of you must be buried. All of you, right. The leg had to be buried too. So I called the hospital where my father died. And I said what I needed. And they put me in touch with the head of nursing. And I said, I began to talk to her about it. And unfortunately, I began to laugh and I couldn't stop. And it was <laughs> so embarrassing. But to look for a leg it just seemed absolutely ludicrous. And she's, she was quite serious, though. She said, I'm terribly sorry. You should have been asked if you wanted to have the leg cremated, buried, or disposed of. And she said, we disposed of it, and I can't have it. I can't find it for you. So I had to call the rabbi back, and I said, look, my father was a devoted congregant of yours, and if he and my mother were meant to dance in heaven, God will give him another leg, won't he? And he did preside at the graveside service and he was quite wonderful and uh that's the story of my father's missing leg (laughs) we will never know we will never know where it went he went one in one direction and the leg went in another and oh my goodness and this is why there's often something very funny at the edge of darkness
1: yes yeah 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 definitely definitely I mean how can you not laugh <laughs> right I mean, and it's a great it's
0: a saving grace when you're really upset about something uh, to mm. find something funny in a in a sad situation yeah. it really helps you get through it
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah that is that's really good <laughs> that's a really I good know. story. I'm sorry that it's true it's just that's sounds a like a like- sherlock's
0: home mystery,
1: doesn't it this yeah case, it, or- it's- or a Nancy Drew mystery, the case of the missing leg. The missing leg, oh my goodness. So how old were you when your father died?
0: Well, I was already on Medicare. We were all on Social Security at the same time. It was insane. Mm. Uh, He was 27 when I was born. Oh, so you were 73? Yes.
1: Wow. And that's why
0: it was pretty embarrassing. Uh, When my father died, this is another thing that happened. I got to the hospital late because I had gone to the library. And when I went to his room, I realized he had died. The bed was empty and there was a black rubber sheet on it, which almost seemed symbolic. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to the nurse. I said, did my father die? And she said, yes, please go into the uh, waiting room at the end of the hall and someone will come and speak to you about it. And so I went in and there were three lovely women sitting there whose sister was dying, and they were middle-aged women. And I came in, and I burst into tears. And they jumped up, and they put their arms around me, which was just so wonderful. Mm. Uh, And then they said, Would you like us to pray for him? And I felt they meant, you know, some other time. (laughs) But they meant right then. And they formed a circle with my hands, too. And they begged Jesus to take my father home, which was another thing, and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my father's turning over down in that mortuary. But oh my gosh. I have to say that I felt tremendous. I didn't tell the rabbi this part of the story. No, no,
1: no, no. <laughs> but I
0: felt tremendously comforted by those women. My, yeah. heart, my heart was really lifted by them and how kind they were. And It was a little startling, but it was still a great experience in the middle of a bad experience.
1: Yeah, and that's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's funny because it, it's just a funny that immediately some Christians found you and got Jesus involved. That's just funny. But yeah, it is beautiful that their instant reaction was to care and to be kind to you. And as you said, like, when you lose someone, it's full of these moments of surrealness and bizarreness and sadness and funniness. and. And that's partly why I started the show, was that when my dad died, there was so many experiences like that. That were so weird and funny. And then and you were a child. I was 15, yeah. So oh, I was young. Such a tender
0: age to lose yeah. a parent.
1: Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> no. It's definitely not great. But I, that's one of the reasons, yeah, I, I wanted this show to exist for a place where we could admit these things. Because I felt like so many people were like, oh, you know, I don't want to say but this quite funny thing happened. <laughs> right. And I feel like we should all admit, like, death is not, you know, angels don't descend and you don't instantly become very sincere and serious if that's not who you are as a person. You know, it's real. Like, stuff gets spilt and people say the wrong things and it's embarrassing and funny and sad and silly at exactly the same time. There's no right thing
0: to say. And no. I, I feel sorry for people who try to express it. I, I don't get angry with anybody for saying the wrong thing because I don't Mm. think there is a wrong thing I have to say too that you'd think that those women would have started laughing when this 73 year old woman comes in crying (laughs) about her dying father I mean they could have said by goodness was he Methuselah I mean (laughs) and instead they put their arms around me and prayed for him yeah Uh, which is just just an amazing story I think
1: yeah no it's beautiful and I think anybody any experience we have where you get that human connection with someone who doesn't need to give it to you you know isn't your relation or your loved one and it's just as we were talking about before during the pandemic of just people being kind for the sake of being kind is so heartwarming because so much of our life is a you know this kind of rat race of against each other and not helping people and who can get there the fastest and just get out my way and whenever there is that connection you're reminded of like oh we're all the same we're all just people trying to make make the best choices and sometimes we get it wrong
0: we're all stuck in the human condition and (laughs) here we are and and we have to have a sense of humor about it so i'm so glad you're doing something funny about (laughs) sad things
1: well, I'm glad there's some funny stories <laughs> that happen. But yeah, thank you. Um, I just wondered as well, what, what do you think, if this is an okay question to ask, what do you think Morty would have made of you writing the story? Have you considered well, that? He liked my work very much. And I think he was
0: very proud of me. And I think he would want to have been remembered Mm. Uh, I mean everyone wants to be remembered in some way. Uh life is so fragile and and it seems very short even though I've lived a very long time. I'm I'm mm. heading toward 92 in January and uh yet I feel that I've only been here for an afternoon, you know, <laughs> a long oh. afternoon, but, but yeah. an afternoon. <laughs> but I think I think he would have been happy to be remembered in that way. Uh, and also the memorial service, the playing of the jazz music that he loved. He played Saxon clarinet, and my younger grandson has taken his saxophone at last. Oh. My yeah. feet were resting on it when I was at the computer all the time. It was under my desk, and uh, I'm happy that my grandson has it now, and that one grandson has his watch, and things that belonged to him. And I think he he loved them so much that he would be happy for them to have them as well. It's hard to know what someone would have wanted. Mm. We didn't really discuss that very much, but like the um, man in the story, he did opt not to have any heroic measures. Mm. And because he had so many comorbidities, he didn't have a real shot at uh, surviving it. Mm. And I'm surprised I did. At ninety, I mean that's sort of miraculous. Yeah. I feel yeah. if if my father was Methuselah, I was Lazarus. I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you obviously your yeah your work is not done. That's what it feels like. Somebody oh, I'm not like, done
0: yet. I now yeah. I feel I want to write more stories about Paulette, whose life seems even though I don't use det- that many details of my own life except in this story. many aspects of their lives paralleled ours. They're getting married, they're having children, the usual struggles and joys of married life. And now I'm thinking, hmm, Paulette, who's only 90, she's not 91, I made her somewhat (laughs) different from me, is now living alone, and what about her independence? I Mm. treasure my independence. My kids say, well, can't you get someone in to help you? I said, I don't want anybody in here. You know, I think of Philip Larkin writing about the old fools. Don't they know it when the strangers come? <laughs> and, and that has stayed with me. So I, I'm thinking that Paulette, my fictional character, would be worried that her mm-hmm. children are going to force her into assisted living if she takes a fall, mm-hmm. if she forgets to turn the oven off, or if she puts the sponge inside the refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, I worry every day, I'm, I'm alone, and every night I check everything. I mm-hmm. check that I've locked the door, that I've shut off every faucet and the oven. I make sure the refrigerator is closed. It's really important. And it's not mm-hmm. something that my husband and I did blithely when we were only 89 or 90. <laughs> we just took it for granted that everything would be done properly.
1: Mm. I hope you, I really hope you do continue, Hilma. I think you should. Like, you know, it's it's so interesting to hear that perspective from somebody who, who can write it down and can, you know, has the writerly brain, thinks in that way and, and can offer us that perspective. Because I don't think it's a voice we often hear because often someone that age isn't able to write it down anymore for various reasons so I sincerely hope you know we hear more about Paulette because I love Paulette <laughs> thank just, you I, I, I love feel, her I was
0: like I, I feel as if she's an old friend uh, mm. and I say I I have great curiosity about what happened to her and the only yeah. way I can find out is to write about it
1: yeah oh yeah Hilma do 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 and I I really loved um, at the beginning of the book, you know, the dedication, just saying Morty. I just thought that was so beautiful. And I feel like, yeah, you know, you have offered a way to remember him when that was completely taken from you in this completely unusual, you know, once in a century situation. And I'm just glad that you you found the strength to do that because I think it will help a lot of people as well to read that story and as you said it's a truth wrapped up in a lie but my god that's that's how we learn so many things that's how we understand ourselves and the human condition so yeah I want to know what happens next (laughs) me too (laughs) do it (laughs) tune in yeah yeah well Hilma thank you so much for talking to me I really appreciate it and for remembering Morty and Abraham thank you so much for having me. You can follow Hilma on Twitter at Hilma H I L M A walletser W O L I T Z E R and her book Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket is available to buy now and is absolutely brilliant. I thoroughly recommend it. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely. Uh Hilma was in New York, I was in London. It was edited by Kate Holland in London. The music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. The artwork is by Jade Perkin and remember, you are not alone.